there was multiple competing truth claims on every subject. So, like, how do you choose what is true? Like, it, it's no longer just literally the guy on Sunday got it fun, he said it, so that's what it is. This is part two of our two-part conversation, and this is episode number six. Let's go another round as we discuss why young people are leaving the church and organized religion en masse. I thought I'd kick off this episode by throwing out a few extra stats. Here in New Zealand, as Nigel said in the last episode, the stats are very similar to the US and other Western countries when they talk about millennials leaving church. Roughly 60% of kids raised in church walk away from their faith within two years of leaving high school. So that's huge and definitely something worth discussing. According to the New Zealand census, between the years of 2006 and 13, which was when our last census took place, within the church context, some groups actually have had some positive increases in numbers. So the Protestant non-denominational church, people that have ticked that one on the box there, have had a 26.4% increase in numbers. I guess that could be a reflection of some churches kind of changing their titles, moving away from mainline denominations, or maybe it could be that they're just growing naturally and all other mainline Christian denominations like Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, etc., they've all had major decreases down about 20% in numbers between the years 2006 and 13. But interestingly also, those that tick the box under the church denomination fundamental, uh, those numbers went up about 11%. In terms of pluralism, we're going to cover that near the end of this episode. New Zealand is clearly becoming more multicultural and more multi-faith. For example, Sikh numbers in New Zealand have doubled since 2006. Hinduism has increased by 39.6%. Muslim or Islam has increased by 27.9%. In the box, people take that says no religion has increased Uh, up 7% since 2006, with over 50% of all people between the ages of 20 and 40 in New Zealand saying that they have no religion whatsoever. So that's the the largest portion of the non-religious sector in New Zealand, those between the ages of 20 and 40. Now coming up, we continue to explore why those numbers are so high. We tackle a few of the specific issues like the LGBT debate and we discuss why these issues are so important for young people and why people would be leaving churches because of them. So let's get back into the conversation. This was a live event recording at Crave Cafe. So my next point here is that Maybe young people leave because church to them or their faith tradition to them isn't radical enough or engaged in issues that millennials find really important. So issues of climate change, poverty, the LGBTQ debate, equality, change, race, these kinds of things. And I think Pete Rollins, you mentioned him before, he's really big on this in that he wants religion to be something, I guess, something that is really engaged and practical. And when we see the church say one thing but not do it, we kind of like, I'm going to go somewhere else. It's interesting because Pete Rollins is a bit of a flavour at the moment and um, you know he's got a lot of good stuff to say. I think what I value the most about him is his critique of modern evangelicalism, which he basically, I think, in many ways paraphrases the book of James and he basically says if you're not living um, out what you believe, you don't actually believe it. So he says he has a lot of people coming up to him you know, thinking he's a bit of a heretic. will be like, do you believe in the resurrection? And he'll be like, you know, actually, I'm going to live with you. Sometimes I don't. Okay, so when I look, when I walk past someone in the street that's needy, 
I am, I'm rejecting the resurrection. When I um, see someone that I know is in need of some support and I don't do anything about it, I'm rejecting the resurrection. When I know there's an issue that needs to be fixed, yet I remain outside of that, I deny the resurrection. Sometimes I agree with that. Sometimes I affirm it, but you know, I, I do it with my actions. It's not like a decisional thing. We, we're very fixated on that, and he's very good at bringing that critique, saying, you say you believe it, you don't actually. Your actions define that. So yeah, I think it's, very, I think it's a really worthwhile thing to listen to. <laughs> so maybe, maybe nice to reframe that question a little bit. Um, have you seen millennials that you know really struggle with these big ideas of you know these different topics that I mentioned, and that's been a core reason they've left the church or been frustrated with the church? Yeah, um, it feels like there's a whole lot of things that factor into why people leave in, in that regard. So this definitely is one of those factors in. And so the LGBTQT thing is has been really significant for a bunch of people and it's uh, been a great source of alienation and, and sort of the system kind of really pushing hard on, on a certain few things you know so I'm you know, part of the Baptist tradition and, and so we just had our a big sort of debate on that about a year and a half ago and you know people were wanting to kind of there's like six articles of what it really means to be a Baptist and they were wanting to add a seventh one uh, was like not homosexual you know and, and I was like man for me I'm going anyone that's listening to this this group of people mostly with grey hair you're making this into this massive issue when it's just, it's not the massive, Jesus didn't make it a massive issue. Why are we, yeah, and there's a sense of a preoccupation with sexual ethics really uh, in, in a way that is not biblical, you know. It's there in the Bible, but not in any way, shape or form. Um, Tim Keel, he, he kind of made the statement that God cares about sex, but he just cares about people, humans, much, much more. So his first concern is to, to humans, humanity, than it is to the idea of sex and sexual ethics. And so I think that that's, a, for me, a real good start point. And in, in the sense of you know, why people are rejecting the church, you know, there, there's certain points that culturally become really significant. You know? And you know, I think um, the gay marriage d- debate, because of the, the you know, change in the legal structure, you know, forced churches to kind of engage with this thing because you know, they had to kind of make some calls on it. And um, really, I, I think the church has found wanting um, in a lot of areas. Particularly, this is a thing that goads me, um, a lot of the leadership acknowledge that in 15 years or, or less, the church will change its mind on this stuff, but that is not going to be the people that lead that change. Wow. You know? So they, they know the tide is turning and, and it's against what they're saying, but they're, just not, they're not prepared to be the people that lead that. You know? And I think, oh, that's weak. And what do you think the fear is there? Just to stay on that topic a little bit. What's the driving fear? Are they scared of change or are they scared of the morality of their decisions? They would generally for me use the idea of like slippery slope or the rolling wheel and, and things. And so uh, in that sense, there's, there's a, a thing that if we can stand hard against this, then we stop the dam from breaking. You know? And if we let this go, boom, and the floodgates open and it's going to be just debauchery. And then also there's a sense of legacy. Like they just don't want to be the people that, that ushered that in. And they're like happy for the next people to kind of get crucified by the wider, you know, boomer, you know, conservative crew. And on this issue of like kind of radical uh, faith in terms of the more positive side of loving people and being a social advocate, do you see that millennials are kind of leading the charge on that and that they, they care maybe more than previous generations have. Totally when it comes to liking on Facebook, they are all over that, you know, yeah. Um, and that, that thing of, you know, selectivism, it's a, it's a truism, but man, I don't, I don't think it is nearly as much of a thing thing as millennials would like it to be. You know, I like to think, that, you know. So you go, oh, on any given weekend, you know, how many Christians are out 
in the in the old neighbourhood or whatever doing something that's making the world a better place. No, not very many. Yeah, um, mostly avocado on toast. Um, yeah, so in that sense, there, I, I I think they might rally against the idea that church isn't doing the stuff, but not because they are deeply outworking it themselves, but more they think the church should be, and it's like them, the church, not not me, the church, and and that's part of I think some of the problem. That's good. That's good critique. Another thing that has come up in this conversation, people probably leave when things don't quite go the way they thought they would go. They think their church is going to be this happy place. It's, uh, you know, you do the right things. It's kind of this transactional, you go to church, you do the right things, you obey these laws, that life is going to be blessed. That God's going to bless you in all sorts of ways, that you're going to have heaps of money, your relationship's going to be great. And when these things start to fall apart and unravel, people are like, Oh, it's, it's not actually doing the things that uh, I thought it would. So they're out. Have oh, you seen that? Man. So like the rumours, I, I couldn't tell you for certain, but like that, like on Christian dating sites, you know, 80% of people, their favourite verse is Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Yeah, and plans to prosper you. And that's like the base. I remember when I was like 13 and a youth leader gave me that verse and I was like, oh, that is amazing. Uh, you know, Lord's going to prosper me. And, and I was super pumped. I put it on my wall and I read every day. I was like, oh, I was super stoked that, you know, that was going to happen. And there's a sense that deep down, while we know reality, there's a, there is a, a kind of a, a prosperity-ish type thing, like not in a full Kenneth Copeland prosperity theology crazy stuff, but if I am good and if I do mostly obey the rules and I mostly don't sin, God will mostly bless me and it will mostly be okay. You know, there's that thing. So it's not strong and stern, but it's there. It's like, and, and a little bit, I deserve it because I'm better than my non-Christian mates, you know, and so I, it, it should be. So that sits in there. And when things don't go right, you know, man, Christians die of cancer at the same rate as non-Christians die of cancer, you know, and, and we pray for healing, but we get healed the same amount that non-Christians do. It's like, oh, that's stink. That's a bit disappointing because I was hoping that more Christians would get healed. So I think that disappointment with God is a deep thing of, of leaving the faith, you know, not just sort of leaving the church. Because um, a church can be a thing to help you through disappointment, but sometimes it's this thing of like, screw you, you know? Um, I thought you were and I deserve this and it didn't and so you don't even exist. It's dark and depressive, isn't it? Jesus is there to suffer alongside us. And that's like ugh, easy words to say, but it sucks when you're suffering and you're thinking, oh, Jesus, you could, you could change this. Jesus, you know, as the incarnation, you know, he chose to suffer uh, and not on our behalf, but with us. I follow the suffering God and that knows what it's like more than whatever I've, I've experienced and that and he will be with me and walk alongside me and he, he gets it. And so that, that's my, my solace, not it's going to be okay, because sometimes it's not. Did you have anything to say on that, Sam? Um, yeah, I remember being broken down by someone once um, that often, I, I mean, I keep, feel like I keep picking on youth groups, but often in youth groups, what, what gets sold is the adventure gospel, which is get along with Jesus and your life is going to be, use words like epic, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be a crazy ride, it's going to be exciting, and it is all those things, but it's also boring and monotonous and repetitive and a bit crap sometimes as well. Um, and so it's not all an adventure. Um, and what it does, it just sets you up for, for terrible theology. And when you're in a church service finding it boring, suddenly faith isn't real anymore because you're not experiencing it um, on that level. So I felt like a lot of my job as the young adults working in that was, was to actually unlearn a lot of that with some of the people, was to say, actually, it's not all, all going to be great. It's um, not all going to be like a Bon Jovi music video. They don't watch those anymore. Anyway, it's, um, it's, it's going to be... <laughs> It's going to be about, um, you're actually going to have to 
put some things in your in place in your life that are that are going to be hard as well, and, and you've got to you've got to get get on board with it. I'm a seven on the Enneagram, and one of my things I try to avoid is pain. So I think for me, growing up in youth group, it was always yeah, I totally got on board with Adventure Jesus. I like that. <laughs> with like a mullet and armbands. Yeah. Number number eight of ten. Maybe millennials are leaving because we feel like everyone has been too overprotective of the rules. So maybe this is coming down to the morality thing again of you've got to stick to all these rules. If you don't quite meet those rules, which tend to be really hard, and none of us do, let's be honest, you kind of get a bit uh, disorientated and you start to slowly drift away because you're like, I'm, I just don't think I quite belong in this group of perfect people. Have you seen that? Again, this is more from my experience than anything else. Certainly, as you become, as you grow into young adult years, um, let's talk about sex, we might as well. You, you have experiences that put you into the side of impure rather than pure, as you've, as you've learned what those categories are. And suddenly you're in the impure category and things are, um, are not as simple as they were bef- when you're on the, on the pure side. And, um, and then you discover that you actually quite like that and so now you're in a phase where you can be in a phase where you're you're doing the thing um, but you know you shouldn't be doing the thing so you're experiencing massive cognitive dissonance and for me when I when I sort of oh this is getting really personal but um, for me when I was in that space I guess for me that's what sparked a lot of my anxiety was the fact that I couldn't reconcile these two things in myself so I think on reflection of my experience of, of being like, this is bad, don't do it, and this doesn't seem that bad in ex- when I'm experiencing it, um, <laughs> um, trying to reconcile those two things caused me immense like, emotional turmoil. And I think probably what I'd like to have been told is, this is what we recommend, and actually these rules, they grew out of wanting to protect you, but actually it's not about the rules, it's about you have got to internalize your own belief system about this kind of thing. Work out um, who you are and what you want and stick to that. And work out what you actually believe and stick to that because if, if, you, if you don't manage to stick to it, you'll just be all over the show. And I, I think um, what we do is we maintain these external rules, these external moral systems, whether it be your pastor, whether it be what you think the Bible says, whether you think it's just the accepted morality and it's out there and it's the thing that I should do, but in here I'm doing this, and the, just the tension between the two is immense. So if you're able to say, this is mine, I own it, this is what I've decided... And, I've, and I know that it's not going to cause me turmoil, then you can actually engage with it in a healthy way. But telling teenagers what to do would be a completely different thing. So over to you, Nigel. Yeah, man. No, well, I, I definitely don't do that. I did the sex talk at Easter camp you know, a couple of times, and I, the, the, after the second time, I was like, I will never do that again, because <laughs> you, you've essentially got all these different youth ministries with all these different sort of standards or, or ethics, you know, and, and no matter what you say, at least half the room hate you, yeah, and think that you're you're dumb. Uh, and so I, yeah, I came away going, I'll just let someone else feel that pain. The idea of um, of rules and things like that, there was huge pressure uh, from all the system for people to conform, uh, particularly to sexual ethics and, and boundaries rules, you know. And so there's massive pressure on all leadership to to enforce it and make that happen. And it's a it's a really tough thing. The cognitive dissonance would be what I think most people experience this sense of like I believe this but I'm doing that and I'm not going to stop doing that but I still believe this 
uh, I'm not going to change that belief. And, and there's not a great deal of good forum to kind of talk about that. And um, it takes trust. And so, you know, you're talking around maybe um, what does confession look like, you know, and what, you know, th- those are, I think it's a real good question for today. Um, you know, like I grew up in a context where it was like accountability groups were, were the norm. And, and so there was a sense of like you could be accountable with your peers. But I think on some level, the more it's just internalised and you're just trying to navigate this journey yourself, I think that just gets tougher and tougher to a point where you go, it's it's too too much, I'm out. Yeah. Is there some bad kind of theological teaching in that we're told you've got to do these certain things to get to heaven or to meet some sort of standard and kind of missing the point of Jesus loves you no matter what you've done at the start and he wants to take you on a journey and you'll kind of learn to change as you go and he'll deal with things as they come and do you think it's a theological issue or is this yeah I don't see it preachers like you're going to go to hell if you do this but it's more like you're just going to really disappoint God and he doesn't like to be disappointed and and so what that does is inherently so you've got like you know let's say whatever 97 percent of guys look at porn in teenage years and the other three percent lie on the stat thing and you've just got all these teenage guys and then an increasing number of girls you know who are struggling with this issue and going oh, i just god hates me or god's really disappointed with me he, he doesn't hate me he, he loves me in the way that you know someone loves me but he just he just wishes i'd be better you know and so there's this real thing of like, I just can't engage um, with them because at the end of the day I'm not, I'm not good enough. Um, that's not a new thing to now, uh, but I think maybe you go with the access to, to porn and, and all the things like that, it's just, it's bigger and bigger, you know, and so the, like, non-Christians are talking about the problem of it, you know, it's, it's not like a, a Christian ethic as much as it's like a societal, there's a problem here, you know, and we've got these people growing up with all the sexual dysfunction. And so some of the, the reasons why, biblically, you know, and as Christians would say, it's not a good idea, are being borne out by just the mass society and the problems that are, that are coming out from that, you know. At the core, people know, I'm not going to go to hell because of this, but, but it just breaks up that sense of connection, you know. You guys have both gone to sexual sin, but obviously sin is a lot broader than that. Do you think the church has just focused on that? Or have we as millennials just like felt convicted of that because that's the, the big kind of elephant in the room? In terms of the why, it's uh, easy to pinpoint, you know. You either have or you haven't, sort of stuff. Uh, whereas I go, pride is like, oh, did I exhibit pride today? You know, mm, did, did I exhibit greed today? It's like, mm, did I yeah, exhibit idolatry? So Jesus talks way more about idolatry than ever about sexual stuff, right? But it's like, it's hard to know if like, was that idolatry or would I just like that, you know? Um, yeah, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. So we can all easily explain away. And when we see someone struggling with, you know, you see a pastor struggling with anger or pride or anything like that, you're just like, it's like, oh yeah, but they're working on that. My mate Dwayne Major, he, he got up and he was talking to me, he was saying, oh, I struggle with gluttony. He used to be a prop forward for Canada, you know, and, and Canterbury, and he, he's a massive dude, but not fat at all. Like he, he could eat like a thing, man, you know? And he, and I'm like, I've never heard any leader ever talk about struggling with that, you know? Because it's that, that's never a thing. But surely it, it must be in there. You know, but there's, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that we would say are just non-events. But scripturally, there's not more or less weight to them. And there's definitely more weight given to like, issues of money or idolatry you know, and pride and stuff like that than there is given to um, sexual stuff. I mean, it's like, why did the evangelical church in, in America choose you know, abortion and homosexuality as its two pillars of what it means to be a Christian? You know? It just decided that. And that's become the litmus test. And people will vote on that one issue. You know? Forget all the other things that Jesus would have cared about. Those are the two things that kind of make you true or not true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we could go way further on that and maybe we'll have to do another whole topic on that issue. I'd love to do one on sexuality. But moving on to exclusivity and maybe millennials are maybe a little bit more pluralistic and more explorative of other religions and other truth claims. Yeah, for me, you know, it's one of the real big ones that 
we live in a pluralist age, so you know, pluralism being like, where do you find truth? So just to kind of segue slightly into this issue of pluralism because it relates to this, um, what I've realised is I hear churches and pastors sort of preaching on why it's bad that young people are pluralistic, you know, that they you know, they kind of get their truth from multiple sources or they don't, you know, they don't just get it from this bit here. And I, I kind of go, man, people don't choose to be pluralistic. They've, it's forced upon them. So when we talked before about there's a massive amount of information that's available to you. And so you've, like, how do you determine truth? Like, there is multiple competing truth claims on every subject so like how do you choose what is true like it, it's no longer just literally the guy on Sunday got it front he said it so that's what it is you've got to make these decisions and and so you've got to you've got to pick your truth sources not and not saying oh the Bible's a truth but it's like literally how do you interpret that because there's like 50 different ways to interpret every single passage and you know whatever you want to believe you can find someone who's pretty smart who, who's you know backed it up with some scholarly stuff and so it is a tough deal to navigate that if it's say you're going to even go into like theological study, you go, I'm going to that college or that seminary or that whatever, because that's what I want to end up believing. Like people don't, there's not just a, oh, this is the open seminary or the open theological college that just teaches the truth, you know? Like you have to determine, like I'm going to be a Calvinist or I'm not, or I'm going to, you know, uh, you know all the different things that you want. And so, because they're going to form you into that way. And it's a, it's a tough world. So in the context then of what is exactly truth, so the idea that Christianity's got all these exclusive truth claims but what exactly is the true part, you know? Yeah, I believe it's true, but what bit and, and how? And you know, and so it's a real hard thing, whereas in the past it was just real simple. It was like, like John 3.16, you know? It was easier back in the day, and it's really hard now. And it's not because people have chosen for it to be hard. It's been thrust upon them because of the epic amount of information. And I don't think that old generation really truly appreciate that. And so there is, man, very few sermons on like how to find truth sources that aren't just, it's the Bible and the way that I teach it. I think people might be having kind of an existential crisis just listening to you, which is great. And yeah, so many different potential truth claims out there. How do we know that our particular faith is, is right? Or does it, does it even matter that it's right? Yeah, so this is the thing, hey. It's important, I think, for people to be able to process and journey and go through stuff. Yeah, so, so I think it's really important for a church, but it's really, really hard for a church to do it as well because it basically sets itself up difficult times you know and and no institution and no organization wants things to be difficult they always opt for safety opt for touch opt for the the safe option and so it is super hard so i uh think that part of what it is is that people will edge towards those that are prepared to kind of ask things a bit different so you know pete rollins has been brought up a few times here you know like rob bell he was super popular when i talk to a bunch of pastors they'll be like oh think Rob Bell was like that you know but they won't endorse him anymore they won't back him or they won't you know, because it's like oh you know and so there's a sort of thing of of people still kind of thinking it's good but I'm not going to really say that because it's, <laughs> I'm not really allowed to. Do you think the main thing that Rob Bell did to change all that was the fact that he was quite pluralistic and I think the fact he asked questions yeah and he didn't give super clear answers yeah that 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 were consistent with like normal orthodoxy yeah Love Wins as a book it was um he was trying to kind of basically explore theology and, and poetry and, and, and stuff and, and do things in a way that wasn't just, you know, a scholarly book. And, man, that's a real hard thing to do. And on some levels, he didn't do that very well, you know, and so ended up, yeah, making people think a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, and saying that there is a bunch of uh, more orthodox theologians that would believe what he believes, but the way he, he portrayed it and what he said it and, the, and his level of questioning, which then, without the answers, 
well, less people really uncom uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and because people don't like it, you know. That, so we came up for the room for doubt. Yeah, there's room for doubt. We talk about doubt, but when you actually put some stuff in there and have a wrestle, sheesh. Do you have any comments on that, Sam, on the exclusive nature of some religions being a bit too closed? Yeah, I think, again, I felt, felt more, more of probably a victim of that than, than anything else. And so um, one of the things I did when I was not attending church, I missed the community. So I created a group called Not Church, which is a terrible name, um, lack of creativity, and actually on reflection quite op oppositional. But we just couldn't think of another name. So we just we called it Not Church, and we just get a group of people together. Um, most were post-Christian. Um, everyone was pretty much post-church. And uh, some were atheists, some were agnostics, some were sort of still very spiritual. Um, I was sort of probably one of the more orthodox in the room, but we'd just get together, uh, have a drink or a dinner, and we'd talk about, you know, how do you construct meaning or live in a meaningful way, and how do you decide what your personal ethics are, and how do you uh, explore spirituality in a way that's not confined to this language? We went into that sort of thing thinking, I could be proved wrong, or I could be proved, my beliefs could be exposed for being very shallow or non-reflective, and that was great. So I think there's a lot to be gained from a, from a pluralistic conversation, and I think the church could uh, benefit from that as well. So, I mean, the great thing is that everyone's in conversation now, so we now have to think through what we believe really, really carefully. And this is why you'd get more of the authoritarian pastor probably a little bit of a dying breed because you know no longer can you just say stuff in the front and everyone kind of like oh yeah you said it, it's correct actually my friend who's going through this at the moment and these doubts has really good reasons to think that you haven't even addressed that so I can't even begin to accept what you're saying because you haven't even addressed the other stuff and maybe there's pluralism in terms of other religions have you seen people wrestle with that and that they want to be able to include other faiths into this kind of I guess broaden the tent to say some of my Buddhist friends, I mean, they pretty much believe in really similar ideals and ethics. Like, why are we so anti them? Yeah, so um, there's a really, really good theologian called Jürgen Moltmann um, who was writing through the middle of the 20th century and later. And uh, he um, basically critiqued these spiritualities that he said were, were called epiphany theologies, where you would uh, feel as though you connect with the ultimate meaning in this place right here and now. And so New Age philosophy, he would basically have a little bit of a jab at. Now, he's not saying they're all bad, but he's saying that they don't offer the full picture. So equivalence today would be people like Eckhart Tolle, um, who's almost like the Buddha of the West, and Buddhism would be a form of this epiphany religion. It's basically saying that all that spirituality really is, is we, get a, we connect with ultimate meaning, the eternal moment whenever we can or whenever we want to right here right now and he says it completely divorces it from past and future which is all like the christian message is all about this has been done in the past and we're we're carrying on the heritage now and, and we're looking forward to a day when god will actually renew all of this um so i guess that's the uh, the pushback there on the new age type of um epiphany religion that he's talking about yeah no it's an interesting conversation to have and actually engage with that stuff because there's a lot of good stuff in buddhism a lot of good stuff in eckhart tolle um, but it's just not the whole picture and i guess being comfortable enough to say that that you can look into these things um and learn something from them and to be willing to learn rather than like nah i already know what i believe don't question that yeah i think say 
what's important in this conversation there is the issue of theology of hell. And so there's definitely been a, a shift in like wider church, sort of a genuine pushback and a, and a questioning of like, man, is, is the hell that we grew up with, fire and brimstone and things there, is that the legit thing? And so there's been a, a lot of kind of musing around that because the idea was like, well, there's only one way and it's to avoid hell and that was through Jesus and Jesus, you know, overt belief in the, the Christian Jesus. And so I think with a, a rethinking through what is hell or, you know, and, and the stuff around there and a, and a sense of like Jesus can, you know, died not just for Christians but he died for the world, you know, and so what is it, you know, so a lot of those questions I think, yeah, and Rob Bell's book, you know, did um, ex- explore some, or just asked all those questions, didn't give a whole lot of answers, you know, and, and I think that's as part of this journey of wrestling with the exclusivity, even to go into like, you know, penal substitutionary atonement as a, as a theology and like, you know, Jesus died because just to appease an angry God, yeah, and there's a, there's a number of significant theological positions that are really being pushed against and challenged that, um, that, that when you push against those things, that, like, they're, they're deep, you know, so I would have always read the Bible through a penal substitutionary atonement lens, if you take that lens off, man, the Bible's real different, you know? And, and the sacrificial nature, you know, scapegoating, you know, is um, mimetic theory. There's a bunch of stuff that is, I think, informing how we, how we read scripture now that uh, is, is a shift and a change. And we're in the midst of, of this move and this new thing. And so some of the things that we will jump onto now, we're probably gonna throw off and be like, mm, that was a dumb idea, but new stuff will, will kind of emerge out of this. I guess I want to finish the discussion a little bit on some of the, the positive stuff you guys have seen in new movements. What are, I guess, what are some answers? So what are some positives yeah. that you're seeing? Um, Phyllis Tickle wrote an amazing book, like her amazing name, called The Great Emergence, where she argues that every 500 years, um, the church goes through a massive shift in how they express themselves, which brings new life. And she basically argues um, that history shows us that great upheaval, like we're going through now, of homogenous religion of Christianity breaks up and more vital Christianity breaks through and says that actually faith uh, always spreads rapidly as a result of a lot of um, unease and distress. And I think we're going through a lot of confusion, there's a lot of unease and distress, and what's going to break through is a new vital Christianity which says, actually, I think, I think it's more about this. And when people get hold of that, um, whatever we choose to express it as, it, it will always have life in it. Um, if it's true, it's true. If it's not, it's not. And um, I think it's going to... Time will prove that um, we have something to offer. We've just got to probably throw off a few of the things that are a bit cultural rather than uh, true in and of themselves. Yeah, the way forward is not to tweak uh, what we currently got. Like the, the dominant models we have, you know, you, you can tweak them and try and do a little bit better job of, of these specific bits, you know. And, uh, and so you tend to find, you know, a church will become a bit more the flavour of the month based on it sort of doing a tweak. But it'll, it'll go off the boil, you know. So we started Mosaic 10 years ago and... Uh, it was around the idea of like, uh, I need to be part of the, the solution. So I, I started you know, with three things. One was, A, I wasn't gonna get paid. B, it was gonna be deeply based on a, a geographical local neighborhood. And C, I wasn't gonna lead alone. So it needed to be shared leadership. So 10 year, we're coming up to 10 years now, and sheesh, I love what we're doing. You know, it is epic, you know? And I find immense meaning in it. Uh, I find great sense of deep joy. It's not fun all the time, but it is deeply gratifying. You know? and, and epic, and I am not a person that stays, I get bored easily, uh, so the idea that I can still be into it is like, that's amazing. I thought when we started, man, all these people will come out of the woodwork who are doing little missional, just community stuff, experiments, and you know, and, and we'll kind of be able to have this network of things and, and it'll be awesome, but man, there was hardly anyone experimenting, you know? There's a lot of people whinging, um, but few people 
like just trying something out, yeah? Uh, a, I think a lot of the actual change agents get weeded out early on and they just leave altogether. But I, I kind of think, man, the future is, it just requires experimentation, even within normal churches. So I spent a number of years talking with Baptist churches saying, the young adult thing is not going to change by just doing what we've done, but, you know, by doing a service and doing a small group ministry, and, you know, all those things are what churches do, that's not going to be the fix. Um, we need some new stuff. People would say, well, what's the new thing? And I go, I've got some theories, but no one's really doing them. Um, and so we need to wait until some people have genuinely stepped out and experiment before we can say, yep, this is what the solution is. But everyone wants to wait for someone else to be the, the group or the person of the church to try something new. And they'll opt for touch and do the things that have patently been proven to not work time and time again. So your answer could just be try stuff. That is literally it, yeah. Good theology of failure, yeah. If you fail, it doesn't mean God's not in it. We would look to here, be like, what, can we, what are we doing every year that will fail? Because it's showing us that we are like, just trying, to, we're trying something. And if we, if we hit a year and everything's worked, we know we haven't really tried hard enough. Um, and, and we're reverting into that sense of institutionalism you know, that, that sits and stuff. And it's at the start and the opening journey when things are really hard and it's difficult, that's when all the good and the gold, that's when the mission is right at the fore. And you're like, we'll do anything to achieve that because you know, we've got nothing to protect. If it fails, who cares? You know? um, so you can go bankrupt when you're young. It's harder to go bankrupt when you're 50 than it is when you're 20. There's, there's a whole lot of things like that. Man, you've got space. Look, in that, this millennial age group, there's, there's a space to like, because the consequences are essentially pretty small. It is amazing how many people are like, oh man, I love the idea of what you're doing, but actually committing and doing it is like, oh, it's a bit too hardcore. Shit, it's not even very hardcore, you know? Like deep down, it's, it's just not, you know? And, and so at the core, things won't change if people won't change. That's huge, that's cool. I've got a little quote here from Rachel Held Evans. She says, the reasons millennials are leaving are more complex than a lack of cool. We've been advertised to our entire lives and we can smell BS from a mile away. So if you're just trying to sell us a product, we can tell. What are ways that we can be authentic in inviting people into whatever it is we're doing? I mean, you touched on vulnerability before and I know there's, there's a lot of talk about vulnerability with um, Brene Brown doing some great stuff and that's pretty key, right? So probably from the, the research that I did, the, the big, big thing that came out was at the core, most things boil down to relationships, you know? So you can put up with all sorts of terrible stuff if there's good relationship there. And so, but what we've done is um, siloed off church. So, you, you know, children's ministry, youth ministry, you know, intermediate ministry, young adult ministry, youth ministry, all of these different things. And you, you're in this bit for a while. And inherently, there's a point where you grow too old for that thing. And so the question is, when you don't belong to that ministry, the age group thing anymore, the youth group, the young adult, you know, what do you belong to? Because most people, they don't belong to the church. They belong to that siloed ministry. And, and so there's a natural leave point when you're too old for that thing. And so at the core for me, relationships are critical. So how do we get a church actually engaging together you know, and connected together? Where do we get genuine connections of relationships across the generations? You know, that 15-year-olds can talk to 50-year-olds. You know? Not that they can, but they, they do. There's an encouragement. There's, a, there's context for them for that to, to happen. So I think... A central city church that targets young adults, it can do a good job of, of meeting young adults for, for a season, you know? um, and, and you see that happen time and time again over the last you know, couple of decades, but they're only meeting that age group really, and there's often very few young people, often very few old people in, in those, those sort of contexts. 
And so it's not really sustainable and it's not a community of people. And so people, again, they'll be there for a while and then you're just a bit too old for it, you know. But I just talked to so many people who have left a suburban church, gone to a city church, and then, and it's been awesome, amazing, you know. And then a couple of years later, they're like, oh, it's just like not really. And it's, yeah, and there's all these sort of ends and ours because they're, it's not meeting their needs in the way that they were expecting it to because they went in as a consumer wanting this church to provide for them, you know, provide for their theological needs, provide for their, all, all these other things, as opposed to them going in, going, like, I'm, I'm going to be part of a community here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give and I'm going to receive and, and that. At the same time, I'd say our churches, we have conditioned people to be consumers. So, if, because that's the thing, from when you're five, man, we give you a, five, a, a teacher that's going to look after you and do a five-year-old little Bible study and story about David and Goliath. And then when you're 10, there'll be a, an intermediate, you know, and they'll, they'll be... Bible study specifically targeted to that and when you're a youth group you have a youth leader and they'll specifically target youth services and small groups to your age group so that by the time you're 18 like church is all about you and where you're at at that particular point in your life and you've got people specifically leading and, and going yeah, and you've been taught to be a consumer um, and that you are the centre of this thing she's no wonder when you hit 22 and it's like hey it's not all about you you're like bollocks it isn't about me you know I've been told it's about me my whole life yeah, yeah. So do you think having good relationships with older people is pretty key to getting people to stay in I think it's, I think community? absolutely key. Yeah. But uh, it is super hard to get churches to even experiment on something that will get them connecting across generations because even the adults don't want to hang out with the dumb teenagers. You know? so, so the second highest demographic of people leaving church outside of young adults is empty nesters. So people whose kids have left home and they're like, so why am I at this church again? It's like, uh, not really any good reason. I'll just go to the batch two out of three weekends and then three out of four and then four out of five and I'll start mountain biking and maybe do a bit of this. And, you know, and they just drift out and they don't leave in angst or anything like that. It's just like, this, it doesn't hold anything for them. They were there for their kids. And so if there's not a sense of genuine connection, it's real easy, I think, to, to leave. Sam, have you had any of those really good relationships with maybe wiser older people across generationally that have helped? Uh, yeah, um, in fact, you know, when I was going through some real hard stuff, um, sort of with mental health issues I'm, uh, and feeling like I'd really, really stuffed up, um, one of the most powerful things I did was went to uh, the pastor at the time and just said, look, this has happened. And he said, well, I forgive you if that's what you need to hear. It's great and we really value you and hope you can stick around. And that was, that was all it took to just break something in me that needed to to be let go of. So absolutely, I think it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I think we might wrap it up. Give these guys a round of applause. Thank you. And thanks for, thanks for coming out on a late Wednesday night. Yeah, any final thoughts from you guys? My final thought would sit around, you know, you, you're either just going to be part of what's happening and just, and just at some point you'll just drift off or you'll be part of a change, you know. Um, probably the fact you're here tonight, you, you're not going to be part of the, the existing normal thing you know and so if either start something new you know um, or jump in behind someone who's got a thought experiment and for all the reasons why you can see it, it won't work just back it and, and, and do something you know we're in the midst of the schism of, of changing to something new mm-hmm. and there's not a pathway ahead of us there's not like oh just follow this road or just follow this expert like it's not a place for experts it's a place for experimenters you know and and, and pioneers pioneers will start something but they're not probably going to keep it going as other people jumping behind that so I just just want to see people jump on with something or start something
Thanks so much for listening. Thanks in advance for liking the Round Podcast Facebook page. Thanks so much to Sam Burrows for his thoughts. Thanks also to his band Fins, who let us use their song Nothing to Say, which has been playing in the background between the breaks. If you'd like that, go check out their band at fins.co.nz, and I'm sure you can find them on Facebook and Spotify too. And also a big thanks to Nigel Cottle from Crave Cafe in Auckland and the Mosaic community in Kingsland for his insights as well and for letting us use their amazing venues. So that's all from me. I'm Brad Mills. Thanks for listening to The Round.